through 28? 12 through 28. All right, I had, I had, a, I had 11. Good morning. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Matthew 25, 34. Choir rehearsal tonight at 5. Let me glance about that. Oh, boy. Okay. It's iffy tonight. Uh, continuation, uh, of course, in the uh, study in Ezra, 6 p.m. Uh, finger, finger foods as, as normal. No prayer meeting this week. Uh, see Andrea's number there. Pastor's dinner. That's a little bit of an odd thing, just keep calling it, because everybody's there. Pastor's dinner, Friday, December the 7th at 6 p.m., and that's at uh, Swartz Creek, and there'll be a... Uh, it's, it's a catered dinner, and sign-up is on the helps board right out here beside this door. Join us in caroling with the residents at Devonshire in Lapeer. That's Sunday, December the 2nd at 7 p.m. All are welcome. Uh, we'll pass out ornaments to, that the children have made and uh, do some caroling there. So put that on your calendar. All right. Anything else this morning? Scripture for meditation this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 25, read 31 through 46.
let's stand and open our service with a prayer. Ed, can I ask you to open this morning? Thanks. morning. Uh, please take your brown hymnals and turn to page 213. 213 in the brown hymnal. Then one day across the 
Congregational hymn, does anyone have? Um, I'm going to go with George this morning. It's, uh, I believe 563. 563. 563 in the brown. Okay, why did you pick this one? Because talking about uh, Thanksgiving. Let's go. 
Scripture reading this morning is 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. In slight change, we're starting with verse 12 and going to 28. Still 1 Thessalonians 5. Let's stand as we read God's word, please. Verses 12 through 28. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. May God add his blessing to his word. standing and turn to, I'm sorry, hold on, page 208 in your hymnal, um, which is the brown hymnal, 208 in the brown hymnal.
may be seated. Chapter 5. I want to talk today on the theme of thanking God for adversity, which is probably kind of bangs on our ears the wrong way. We might be thinking, why in the world would I thank God? For adversity. Well, we're going to prod into this subject this morning. As we do, let's ask the Lord to enable us to hear and to learn. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this text in First Thessalonians that tells us we're to give thanks. <clears throat> excuse me, we're to give thanks in all things. And this is one of those texts where all means all. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to understand some of the spiritual significance of why Paul would write that. And he is not uh, simply a Pollyanna. He is not someone that is just pontificating rosy words for people to hear, but he is a person that experienced the all things of life more so than perhaps many of us and yet was able to write this and to encourage us to be a thankful people. We ask that you will bless us with your presence and an understanding of the word in Jesus' name. Amen. A young couple gives birth to a long-awaited child, and together they thank God in prayer for the healthy new baby that now adorns their home and lights up the new nursery. A hard-working husband is up for promotion at his place of employment, but there are two others for consideration for the same position. The boss promises to make his declaration known by November 12th, That day comes and goes, and this Christian husband is informed that he indeed has the promotion. There is celebration, there is thanksgiving in his home that night with his wife and with his family. It's a cold winter day, the roads are icy, the sky is full of snow, and the winds are whipping into blizzard-like conditions. Suddenly the car goes out of control and skids across the median nearly missing oncoming traffic, and it lands in the ditch. Perspiring from fear and shaken by the accident, the young man inside nonetheless collects his composure enough to thank God for his watch care over him and for sparing his life. What do all these scenarios have in common in regard to thanksgiving? 
Is it not that the prayers of all involve giving thanks for what is perceived as good things which have come into their lives at the hand of God? A new baby, promotion raise at work, a near-death accident on the highway. Good, good, good. God, blessing, blessing, blessing. What would be the case, however, if the scenarios were changed? Instead of a new baby, a barren couple. Instead of a promotion at work, the loss of your job and your income. Instead of a near brush with death on the highway, the actual loss of life in that accident. Could we see God's hand in these latter developments as well as in the former? Would we be as quick to thank God for the trials as well as for the joys? The scripture before us today is 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 16 and it exhorts us with a trilogy of seemingly impossible commands. Here they are. Be joyful always. Did I read that right, Lord? Always be joyful. Hmm. Pray continually. Wow. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why should we do these three things? For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Since it's Thanksgiving Sunday, I want to concentrate on the latter one that's given here in this text. Give thanks in all circumstances. Yes, even for adversity. So let's talk about this a little bit. Thanking God for adversity. The first thing I would say is that it is possible to thank God for bad things to come into your life, and to mean it when you say it. And there are many examples of this in the Bible. When Satan attacked Job by God's permission, he lost all of his livestock, he lost all of his servants, his wealth, and most horrendous of all, he lost all of his ten adult children in a day. In a day. And to make matters worse, there was absolutely no breather room between the disasters. As soon as one servant came running to report an incident, another would be on the heels of that one. With more bad news, it was like pouring water on a drowning man. And the coup de gras was the news of his sons and daughters killed by the collapse of the older brother's house in which they were all feasting together. At this, Job fell on to the ground in worship, the scripture says. And this was his prayer. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. 
The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job 1, verse 21 and 22. This is all the more remarkable when we listen to God's evaluation of Job in the discourse he had with Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Chapter 1, verse 8. A man who fears God and shuns evil. Would to God that each of us had a similar accolade to our account. What this means, of course, is that we cannot attribute what happened to Job to his being a wicked man. No, no. No, he's not a wicked man. But this is what we think. We think God was punishing him. But we cannot say that he deserved the bad things which befell him. That's the way we think. Bad things happen to bad people. They deserve it. But Job's problem becomes an enigma to us because in his case, there is no cause and effect. Bad things happen to one whom God called, get it now, blameless and upright. Did not Job unwittingly display that righteousness in his worship of God and his resignation to the will of God, come what may? The text does not say that he thanked God for what happened, but worship, it does say that, he worshiped God, and worship, if it is anything, is bowing to the will of God. And bowing not in a kind of grin and bear attitude, but in gratitude for what he is and what he does. There's a connection between praising God and thanking God. For example, at the laying of the foundation of Zerubbabel's temple, we read, with praise and thanksgiving... They sang to the Lord. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. Ezra 3 verse 11. Or again in Psalm 106, the first two verses. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. No one, or rather who can proclaim his mighty acts or fully declare his praise. So you see, to thank the Lord and to praise the Lord are practically synonyms because praise issues from a heart that is filled with gratitude. Job said of the Lord at the loss of his children, let me read it for you again, 
the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job 1, verse 21. I wonder, could you thank the Lord and could you indeed praise the Lord for taking all of your children in one bold, sweeping moment of time? I have to admit, I'd I'd swallow very hard on that one. I would swallow very hard on that. Consider next King Nebuchadnezzar who bragged about the Babylon he built for his own glory and his own majesty. And God caused him to have a dream which he could not interpret. So Daniel was summoned to give the meaning This is the interpretation, said Daniel. You will be driven away from people. You will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times or seven years will pass by until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men And gives them to anyone that he wishes. Daniel 4 verse 24 and following. And it happened just as predicted. Verse 33 states that he was driven from men. We read his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle. His nails like the claws of a bird. Nebuchadnezzar lived that way like a brute beast of the field for a long time. And in the dream, God's messenger predicted, let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass over him. Daniel 4, verse 16. Seven years, you're going to be that way. You're going to literally lose your mind. But now... At the end of that time, we read, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. Daniel 4, verse 34. And then three verses later, we read the content of his praise. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. Wow. That's a mouthful for a pagan godless king, let me tell you. We read that and we say, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute, I just don't get it. Nebuchadnezzar has just spent seven years as a wild animal with a peanut brain grazing on the meadows like cattle. 
unrecognizable as a human being in his long matted hair and his claw-like nails. And here he is praising God for all this bad misfortune which God sent upon him. What could Nebuchadnezzar possibly be thinking? Well, he says he has regained his sanity, but this surely looks insane. I mean, to be glorifying God for all this heartache and all this trouble. And that for seven years, not just for a few moments. Well, here's his thinking. He tells us what he's thinking. I glorify the king of heaven because... Everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, Allah me, he is able to humble. What he is saying is that Nebuchadnezzar recognized that God had done him good. By sending heartache and humiliation his way. He had rescued Nebuchadnezzar from the damning sin of inordinate pride. He convinced Nebuchadnezzar that there is room in the universe for but one God and hey you aren't it. so he could thank God for the bad things in his life. That brought him this kind of realization. That a pagan king of Babylon would come to these conclusions is a rebuke to us. For all those times when we whine and we fuss with God over the adversity that he sends into our lives. As another example, I want you to consider the Apostle Paul. His testimony to the Corinthian church cataloged his life as an apostle of Jesus and compared it with that of the false teachers who were attempting to distort the gospel at the city of Corinth. So what does Paul say in his testimony? He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again, Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. 39 was the top in their law system that you could be whipped. So that's the way he says it. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been 
constantly on the move. I have been in dangers from rivers, in danger from bandits, in dangers from my own countrymen. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23 and following. This long list of ill treatment might be attributed by some to Paul's enemies, or at least enemies of the gospel. Some might say that being shipwrecked could happen to anyone in those dangerous days of sailing. But Paul praises God for these things. And in particular, that in his own weaknesses, God promised, here it is, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. And in context, God had sent a messenger of Satan to be a thorn in Paul's flesh to keep him from becoming conceited because of the Many wonderful revelations he was privy to as God's apostle. Could have gone to his head. First Corinthians 4 verse 9, Paul wrote, It seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Like men condemned to die in the arena. He's talking about the Roman Colosseum. That's where God is, it looks like that to me that that's where God has placed the apostles, of which I'm one, you know. He goes on. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ. We are weak. We are dishonored. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty and we are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Paul is saying that God has placed him and the other apostles in this path that they're traveling. God did it. They are living out what God has sent their way. That's a lot of heartache to bear, to be an apostle, may I say, to be an ambassador of Christ. It's enough to make any man bitter with his lot in life, but this is Paul's evaluation. Let me read it for you. I thank Christ Jesus the Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. I was shown mercy. Speaking of his salvation, I was shown mercy. 
The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. First Timothy 1 verse 12 and following. What I'm saying, what Paul is saying, what he is showing us, it is possible, it is possible, brethren, to thank God for adversity in your life and to mean it. Knowing that God is controlling that day. You're not just subject to the fickle finger of fate. The things that come into your life, be they good or bad, come at the hand of God. Now, what is the rationale to thank God for adversity? I mean, it has to make sense. So what is, what is behind it all? Let me suggest some things. Firstly, that God is in sovereign control of all the events which come into your life, including the bad things. That's the first thing that you'd praise, you should praise God for. That God is in sovereign control of all the events that come into your life. Doesn't matter if they're good or they're bad. There are not, there are not two deities at work in the universe, Satan the evil deity and God the good deity. If you think in this dualistic way, you will get no comfort or understanding of adversity. God himself gives this testimony. Here it is. There is no God beside me. I put to death. I bring to life. I have wounded. I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. Deuteronomy 32 verse 39. He is saying God is in control of adversity, wounding, as well as blessing, healing. To King Cyrus of Persia, whom we're studying, by the way, on Sunday nights. Whom God used to subdue nations. He said to Cyrus, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. Hmm. I am the Lord. There is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Cyrus, do you know that? Isaiah 45, verses 4 and following. And that same thought is repeated in that same chapter, verse 14, verse 18, and throughout that chapter. He is telling Cyrus, in no uncertain terms, that Cyrus is a king of God's own appointment. Verse 1, he is not God. He may think he's God, but he's not God. And as such, he can just as easily, God can just as easily remove him from his place of honor as putting him in there. In context, God demonstrates to Cyrus just how God evidences his deity and his sovereignty. A number of ways in the text. 
Isaiah 45. Firstly, in his creative powers. I form the light and I create the darkness, says God to Cyrus. Verse 7, verse 12. It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hands stretch out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. Cyrus needed to hear that. Secondly, his governing powers, even of evil. Verse 7, I bring prosperity and I create disaster. He silences his critics and would-be rivals. Verse 9, Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a potter, that's a broken piece of pottery. Does the clay say to the potter, what is it you're making? Do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? God is saying all of this to Cyrus. Thirdly, God's ability to rule and overrule the decisions of nations who trust in their idols. Verse 16. All the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgrace. Verse 29. Gathered together and come. Assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods who cannot say. Oh, and number four, his ability to foretell the future while the idol worshipers cannot. Verse 21, who foretold this long ago, who declared it from the distant past. Was it not I, the Lord? And there's no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There's none but me. And number five, God's willingness and his ability to save sinners, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there's no other. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. We should thank God for adversity because he is behind it in one form or another. Try to get behind your trouble. Try to see the hand of God in it. It's the first rationale in being thankful. The things that come into your life, it's not happenstance, it's not the fickle finger of fate, it's not chance. You're not lucky or bad luck. Lady luck has nothing to do with anything. Not your zodiac. It's not your stars. It's not your constellation. It's God Almighty. Secondly, recognize that God has a bigger plan in mind than your happiness. Hmm. There's something to chew on. God has a bigger plan in life than your happiness. All that God does is for his own glory and honor. 
You are not the be-all. You are not the end-all of what God does. In fact, you're not the end at all. You and I are simply the means to the end. What's the end? The end is God's glory. How am I the means? By becoming whatever God wills and by accomplishing his plan with fidelity and trust. We read this morning from Paul's own lips the heartache, the pain, the suffering that he had to endure as an apostle of Jesus Christ. His boasting was not in how strong a Christian he was, but on how weak a Christian he was. What's the point? Well, the point is that Jesus gave him this principle. My power, my power is made perfect in weakness. So Len, listen to Paul's response. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. This is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, Then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 and following. Boy, there's a perspective on life we don't often have. God is in the business of using weak people to bring glory to his own name. So let's sort out the logic a little bit. The principle of us being the means, not the end of what God does, indicates that you and I are not the main characters in the scenario. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 and following, God chooses to call and use people who are, this is Bible, foolish by the world's standards, weak, lowly, despise people who are not, that is, nobodies as opposed to somebodies. That's who God uses. That's who God calls. That's who God saves. Why does God do this? Two reasons. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 29. So that no one may boast before him. That's reason number one. Number two. So that God gets the glory in all that you and I become. And all the right things that we do. God takes people who are foolish, weak, lowly, not influential in society, and he works his will and power through them. So he gets the glory. We then become the pages of the Bible the people of the world see and read. They know nothing of the power of God in their lives. But they get to see it in your life. Power over such things as illness, 
and heartache and tragedy and pain and suffering and poverty, even death. We are not superhuman in these things, but we are products of God's grace and of God's power. Paul puts it this way, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure, this knowledge, this light in jars of clay. Not Lenox, China. (laughs) Just old earthen jars made of probably red clay, mud. Why does God do that? He goes on, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 and 7. For this to happen will mean that everything that comes into your life will not be peaches and cream. God gets the most glory from how you handle adversity in God-honoring ways. Do you know it was the same with our Lord? Just before his crucifixion and in reference to his crucifixion, Jesus prayed these words, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Now, this is eternal life, that they, the people of the earth, may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. John 17, verse 1 and following. And then verse 11, he says, I will remain in this world no longer. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they, his disciples, may have the full measure of my joy within them. What is this? This is Jesus wanting his disciples to see that he goes to the cross gladly because his sacrifice will mean salvation for sinners. And it will mean glory for God the Father. He wants them to experience his joy in this. Hebrews 12 verse 2 enjoins us, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Get your perspective right. Jesus was pleased to be the means to the end, the instrument by which God would be glorified as the Savior of sinners. If you and I can grasp the principle that we are but vessels for the Master's use, we will find joy in adversity and we will be thankful to be empowered by God to bring him the glory that is due his name. And he set the example. 
Now, what are some of the benefits of a thankful heart with regard to adversity? Number one, thankful hearts have joy and peace. How can that be? Well, we normally think of trouble as that which destroys our peace, don't we? We are moved out of our comfort zone. The stress tends to frazzle our nerves and make us anxious. You have to consider what I am saying in light of everything else that we've learned this morning, not the least of which that God is sovereign over all the events in your life, the good and the bad. But there's another dimension here, and it is this. God works to bring good results out of bad experiences. There's none other like him in this. Classic text, and I'm sure you have it in your mind. Romans 8, verse 28. We know that all things God works for, excuse me, in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. It's important to note what Paul does not say. He does not say God is trying to work out all things for the good of those who love him. But rather that he is actually doing this. Secondly, he does not say God does this for every person on earth but only for those who love him. Thirdly, he does not say that God does this for everyone who professes to love him, but only for those who have been called according to his purpose, those in whom God himself has a vested interest. Other scriptures say similar things. Philippians 2 verse 13. It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So God has a good pleasure or purpose in the bad things which come your way. And his purpose will not be frustrated. Paul in prison, for example, wrote to the church at Philippi. And here's what he said. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. That is, he had been arrested because he was preaching Christ. He goes on. Because of my chains... Most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously, more fearlessly. Philippians 1, verse 12 through 14. God bringing good out of bad. Only God can do that. So what normally makes people cower in fear and hide and try to be not noticed namely persecution, because of persecution, people do these things. But it has had the opposite effect because of Paul's chains. He is chained, but as he told Timothy, God's word is not chained. 
2 Timothy 2 verse 9. And because of that, the brethren were emboldened to speak. Just the very opposite. You would think they'd think this way. You know, our champion, uh, the Apostle Paul, what, what, what he preached the gospel, and what did it get him? Ah, oh, well, it got him in prison, and that's where he's at. And we better hide and keep our mouth shut, or we're next. <laughs> Had the direct opposite effect. They were emboldened, the scripture says, to speak. And then, too, if God is in all events and is working them for our good, would not the other imperatives in our verse be an outgrowth as well? 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, be joyful always. The point being, because even from the bad things, God is bringing about good things. We can be joyful that God's ultimate purposes are never nullified by the evil of our world. God just plows ahead with his agenda, rolling over all of the opposition by the powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Let them do what they worse that they want to do. Ephesians 6 verse 12. Psalm 2 says, God sits enthroned in heavens and he laughs. He laughs at those who conspire against him. Get a grip, brethren. Satanic powers and evil men do not run this world. God runs this world. He said, well, isn't there evil? Yes, there is evil, but God uses that evil to accomplish what he wants done. So we're told to pray continually. Take your concerns to the one that's in charge. They're not Satan. And then to thankful hearts are contented hearts. I think this is one of the blessings of being thankful. It kind of follows from being at peace with what's happening, right? Lose your earthly belongings? Well, it's okay. Because we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. 1 Timothy 5, verse 7. I'm sure you've seen on television those terrible fires in California. Cutting through a little town that used to be called, I say used to be called, paradise. Well, it ain't paradise no more. It's ashes. People say, oh, we've lost everything. I think about things like this. If I lawful my house, my car, my bank account, 
I'm still rich. I have Christ, and more importantly, Christ has me. I remember some years ago, Sony's PlayStation hit the streets. And people sat up all night in front of stores to purchase one of these $500 machines at a pop. 500 bucks for a game machine. For what? Well, so they could fritter their life away playing games with no concern for redeeming the times because the days are evil and judgment is coming. But they'd rather fritter their time away. Are you still living in a rental property and your dream of owning your own home seems more remote than ever? It's okay, brethren. Because like Abraham and Sarah, who preferred tents to mansions, which they could have afforded, we too are looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews 12, verse 10. And every other city that men knows about is destined to melt away in the fervent heat of the coming fire of judgment. Are you sick in body? Or if not sickness, maybe sensing that some of your abilities are slipping away? Boy, I'm noticing that. Physical strength, mental acuity, your memory, old age. Death. It's okay. Because as with Paul, we can say we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. What's this? Well, this is the principle that our weakness is an opportunity for God's power. Our dying is an opportunity for God to display his resurrection life. He goes on, so then death is at work in us. Paul says, death is at work in us. What is he saying? Simply, you're dying, folks. That's what he's saying. I'm dying. We're all dying. But life is at work in you because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit so that the grace which is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10 and following. And in the next chapter, he writes, We are confident and would prefer, we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 8. Thankful hearts are contented hearts. And then finally, thankful hearts can rightly anticipate 
future glory. The great goal of God, the end, is to bring glory and honor to himself as the only God there is. The glory that only God deserves. Inasmuch, however, as your life and mine is utilized as the means whereby God accomplishes this, God has ordained that we, his people, will share in his glory. The Romans 8 text, which told us that God works all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, goes on to state God's set purpose and the completion of it. For, he says, those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, and those he predestined, he also called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he also, get it now, glorified. Wow. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And in verse 18 and following, Paul connects this with adversity, stating, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, for in this hope we are saved. What is he saying? Paul is telling us it isn't always going to be pain and suffering. It isn't always going to be adversity or sorrow or tragedy or deprivation. Ephesians 5.27 tells us that Christ died for his church, that is his bride, to make her holy, cleansing her from, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present to himself a glorious church. Wow. Without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In Romans 8, verse 17, Paul writes, Now if we are children of God, that is, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. It isn't always going to be suffering and sorrow and hurt. There's glory coming. We're destined for that as we're destined for the other. Romans 8, verse 17. Are you destined to share in the glory of Christ? Well, I pray so. If you're willing to suffer with him, you're also going to receive his glory. It comes when we repent of your sin and turn away from your resentment and hostility and surrender in faith to Christ and to his lordship over you. The greatest thanksgiving of praise to roll off the lips of people is the praise and thanksgiving of sinners who have become recipients of God's forgiveness and cleansing and saving grace. 
That's glorious. That's glorious. May the Lord grant you that faith and repentance today. May you rejoice in your adversity, whatever it is. And I know that we as a little church have our share of it. But it's temporary. It's temporary. And we're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Well, we're also going to share in his glory. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the encouragement of it. It's not always going to be bad times for your people. Good times are coming. And not only so, but even in the bad times, we see your grace, we see your mercy. We see that you strengthen us in our weaknesses. We see you pulling us through. We're not tested or tried beyond what we can bear. What we can bear, but there's given to us a way of escape, as you have promised. That's far better than what the world has. May we trust you. May we praise you. Not just in this Thanksgiving season, but every day. Thankful always and in all things. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal, number 184. 184. Let's stand together as we sing. Chose this hymn because this shows us where our minds ought to be in terms of looking for glory. In the Christ, in the cross of Christ, I glory. That's where we take our glory. Let's sing together. One eight four. In the cross of Christ I glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time. All the light of sacred story gathers round its head When the walls of life o'ertake me, hopes and fears annoy never shall the cross forsake me lo it glows with peace and joy when the sun of bliss is beaming light and love upon my way from the cross the radiant streaming adds more luster to the day main and blessing pain and pleasure by the cross are sanctified
peace is there that knows no God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this perspective on adversity. That in the adversity, you are there. And in the adversity, we share in the sufferings of Christ. And if we share in his sufferings, we shall also share in his glorification. You have so promised. We wear the badge of being Christian when we suffer with Christ. Pray that you'll bless us this week. Help us to be thankful, not just this week, not just on Thursday, but every day of the week, thankful for what you have done. In adversity, help us to be thankful, to see in it God's hand, working, chastening, refining, perfecting us, allowing us to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. What a privilege. Amen. We're dismissed.